In the early 90s, there weren't Twitter hashtags, so there was no hashtag MeToo campaign. But there was a flood of pink buttons on women's lapels that read, I believe Anita Hill. This isn't the first time sexual harassment has been at the center of public conversation. This week, we hear from Anita Hill. This is Game Plan. Hi, I'm Francesca Levy. And I'm Rebecca Greenfield. Since our episode a few weeks ago about workplace sexual harassment, even more stories have continued to come out. More people are making accusations against powerful men in all kinds of industries. And it really seems like women and men are gaining the courage to speak up about this just from the sheer number of people who have come out and kind of called out this behavior as wrong and inappropriate and illegal. It really does feel like a moment and... It's not just the amount of people coming forward, but stuff is actually happening. And that that seems new to me, that you can speak up and someone will actually get fired, a powerful person, for their behavior. It is a moment where something feels really different. But this isn't the first time in history that something has felt really different about the way we treat sexual harassment. Of course, the entire Anita Hill episode in the early 90s showed us that sexual harassment was not only something that women had to suffer in silence, but a real actionable offense. And it was on the lips of many people for the first time. And Anita Hill is somebody who I think is uniquely positioned to show us how far we still have to go because she's seen how far we've come from the way that we once talked about sexual harassment to now. Yeah, of course, I know about Anita Hill. She comes up a lot in my reporting, and I know the basic story that she had worked for Clarence Thomas um, when she was at the EEOC, and she testified in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee that he had sexually harassed her when he was um, being confirmed for a Supreme Court justice. We know he got confirmed, and I know it was a big deal, but I was a baby when this happened, so I don't, I didn't actually know how big of a deal and a movement that it was. Yeah, I was also a child when this happened, although I do have a memory of it because it was such a big deal and it was on the news all the time. And I think that there's a huge swath of the working world that this isn't in living memory for them. Um, But from what I vaguely remember and also what I've read, I know that sexual harassment wasn't even a term people really used in any kind of regular way. And there was a big debate over whether or not Anita Hill was telling the truth. Her credibility was smeared. Um, people had all kinds of reasons for saying that she wasn't telling the truth. And then, of course, there were those women and men wearing the I Believe Anita Hill pins who who were coming out on the record to say they did believe her. But that was the central question was whether or not she was telling the truth. And it was Really the first time that even companies started developing policies around sexual harassment. We knew this kind of thing happened, but there wasn't a word for it. And there wasn't really a way to talk about it that everybody kind of agreed on. It's interesting to see the different memes that have come out. Like back in the 90s, it was, I believe her. And now it's me too, which I know now a lot of women don't get believed still. But it does seem like a shift in the way we're talking about the victims of harassment instead of people saying we need to believe these people. Enough people feel empowered to talk about it. They don't think they're not going to be believed. Everyone's posting me too and and people are believing them. Of course, the fact that 
there are this many scandals and there are still this many stories shows that not enough has changed since the time of Anita Hill. Our editor-in-chief, John Micklethwaite, interviewed Anita Hill as part of Bloomberg's Year Ahead Summit. And we think that interview is really informative as to what actually has changed in the law and in culture and what still hasn't changed. So we're going to hear that interview now. Professor Hill, thank you very much for, for coming coming to the year ahead. Um, I'm going to cut s- straight to the chase oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> rather quickly. <laughs> Despite your impressive record at Brandeis, we're going to talk quite a lot about sexual harassment. And my starting question is, in 1991, I was actually in Los Angeles living on the outskirts of Hollywood. We had the Senate Judiciary hearings. I remember a lot of people walking around with badges saying, I believe, believing in you. And back then, a lot of people thought the whole debate about harassment would change and that we wouldn't be living through what we are now. Looking at what's happened with Harvey Weinstein and this new storm about this subject, Do you think this time it will change in a different way? It's like any movement, like any energy, it develops and then you move forward and then there's a plateau. And I think that's what happened in 1991. But I don't think we should underestimate what happened in 1991 either uh, because there was significant change. There were uh, a new civil rights law that had had been doomed Mm. um, that was passed almost within weeks of the hearing. Uh, the number of complaints to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, uh, sexual harassment complaints, double within two years of the hearing. Uh, actually, businesses started to put into place policies and procedures. Uh, and like before the hearings, maybe there would have been, uh, I think, around 10 20% of companies might have po- uh, policies in place to investigate sexual harassment. Um, Afterwards, by 1993, 40% of businesses did. And at this point now, it's steadily increasing um, because of case law. And we're now up to around 90% of companies, uh, maybe even over 90% of companies, have some kind of policy in place. So there has been progress. It has plateaued. And clearly, if you read anything in the papers in the past few weeks, you know that there has not been enough progress. So the question is, where do we go from here? Yeah, what, what, what makes a difference now? Do you think the business now sees this as a serious threat to the bottom line? Is that, is that really the bit which makes the difference, is where business thinks of this as something that could really have an impact on profits? It is costly. Sexual harassment complaints, that if you prevail, if you look at the EEOC's numbers, uh, they cost millions of dollars to companies every year. Um, But uh, I do think that part of the motivation comes from the case law. There's been a development of case law, maybe 10 to 15 cases decided by the Supreme Court. Um, And I think there is uh, there's a movement inside companies. Some companies really do want to do the right things. Sometimes it's because people have complained and they want to force companies to do the right thing. Uh, by their employees. They see that you know, some, their employees are suffering, that there is not only loss in revenue, but loss in talent that can occur because of sexual harassment. 
Can we, can we divide it a bit into structure? I mean, I structural changes, things we might need to do with the law to push us ahead, and then cultural change, which is harder, but often culture tends to follow structure. Do you, do you think there are changes in the law that still need to be made that would make a difference in this field? Oh, absolutely. You're in, and you're right. I can talk all day about policies and procedures, but I have colleagues who study what is actually going on on the ground, and they tell me that most many of the policies that are in place really don't eliminate the problem. Uh, and that is, in, in part, where culture comes in. Mm. Because you can have all the policies that you want, and they can even be good policies. If the culture doesn't support them, no one takes the policy seriously. They don't have to. And so there is sort of, it's hard to separate culture from policy. It's almost impossible. Culture drives policy sometimes, and then sometimes policy drives the implementation and the enforcement, or excuse me, culture will drive the policy Do you think there are things on the law we could do that would make a difference in terms of changing the law? Well, the law is, is another external structure. I'm, I was talking about yeah. internal structures yes. and culture. Uh, there is the external culture and structures. I think that I can push us forward, too. I do believe that many of the policies that have been put in place came about because of those legal decisions that I talked about. But there are some limits, and uh, very recently in the Vance case, and uh, I believe it's in 2013 uh, decision, where the court... Uh, it gave a very limited definition of what is a supervisor in terms of, of employer liability. And so the court decided that a supervisor, if a supervisor harasses, then there is strict liability on the part of the corporation. But then in defining what is a supervisor, what the court said was it had to, the supervisor had to be someone who had complete control over the employee. Uh, the supervisor had to have the ability to hire, fire, demote, uh, punish, all, uh, and, and re even relocate the employee. And as we know, in most operations, especially when you get down to lower-level employment areas, supervisors may give work assignments, which in essence is a control over the employee, but they may not have the power to hire and fire. That may, become, may come up at a higher level. And so that very limited definition of what is a supervisor not only doesn't match many work situations, in addition, it doesn't help many employees whose quote-unquote, supervisor or day-to-day -day manager is giving them a hard time. They may be harassing them directly. They may be allowing other employees to harass. But what the court said in advance was that unless you can hire and fire, you are not, um, the company is not liable for your behavior. And is that something Congress could change, or is it something you have to do state by state? It's something that Congress can change, but I think one of the things that I, I'd like to get people to think about is that what the law is, to me, is a floor. It's mm. not a ceiling. You, a, a corporation could say, for our purposes, a supervisor is anyone who has control over the daily employment of an individual, uh, at least for purposes of harassment, 
and other kinds of workplace violations that they see uh, or are a part of. And so I, I think we, you know, the law can push us in the right direction. And I think the law in this case is wrong and we should be taking a different direction. But I would like to think if, if a company is absolutely certain that women and girls and, and all employees have a right to work in a place free of harassment, then they're going to be looking beyond the strict contours of the law to make up rules and regulations that best fit the values and the needs of the company. And how do you think that will require a new kind of imaginative way of thinking? I suppose we're now moving into the kind of cultural field away from the law. But you were talking earlier, technology, are there things that we can do using that that, that companies could now use to to see or to measure, I suppose, the, the harassment? I think there are all kinds of ways. I, I will say, though, we were talking about external factors. Yes. And one of the things that has happened over the past few years that I think people have, if you've been reading the papers, that you might have taken note of. Since 1991, and, and even in the years after 1991, one of the first questions that I was always asked, whether it was by media or people on the street or why don't women complain? And I think we have moved beyond that in this latest round of stories. And we're looking at what is the behavior mm -hmm. and how are our systems and structures and our enablers uh, and individuals and, uh, who, who keep it uh, occurring or support it knowingly or unknowingly, how are all of these things keeping this behavior going? Uh, and so I think we have moved to a different conversation. And I would hope that that is what drives the inquiry now, as opposed to, you know, so we have to start with something. Before we develop the tactics, we have to figure out what our motivation is. And the motivation you think should be very clearly is not just to follow the law, but to go much broader than that and set up a, a culture where people immediately, A, don't do this, but B, where there was even the slightest hint of it, it is, it is dealt with. And, and I think it, the, the setting up the culture has always been difficult because I, I think most uh, places are risk-averse and they are assuming that maybe if, I, if we don't look into these, you know, sort of look underneath the rugs and inside the desk drawers, this won't, won't happen in our company. But if you look at the number of women who have participated in the Me Too hashtag and just who, people who have spoken out, we know that this continues to be a serious problem. And it seems to me that it's just a matter of time before something happens in just about any company, if you haven't examined. So I think the, the motivation now is strong to be proactive uh, because you can get media attention that will not be good, not only for your business, but also for a business's reputation if the light gets shines on. If you look at Uber, if you look at Fox News, if you look at uh, Google even at this point, all of these companies are now being scrutinized because of stories that have come out. And so I think we are at a point now where it is in everyone's interest to try to be proactive. And we need to look at some kind of traditional approaches to being proactive. And one is look at your companies. Make assessments 
Um, it's, it seems to me that people say, well, oh, we haven't ever had a sexual harassment complaint. Does that, in fact, mean that there is no sexual harassment in your company? Uh, I, I, would, I would be very skeptical of reaching that conclusion. Um, so does, that do, mean, does that mean you need to call in outsiders to come and do those things? I think, uh, at, I think so, at some point it, you, you should. And I think one of the things that triggers the need for outside investigation is, in fact, if you hear of people who are very high profile, high performers, very instrumental either in the founding of a company like Harvey Weinstein yes. or very instrumental in the revenues of a company that, that you should, in fact, bring in outside uh, people to, to make an assessment. In that way, the investigations have integrity you can, you, because you have a truly independent outside investigation. Uh, but, you know, we should be using the same kind of technology that you use to improve your businesses in other ways should be engaged in, um, in improving the, the workplace and the workplace culture for everyone. And where do you think the, the boundary lies between this desire to, to pre- preempt, to prevent on the one side, and then the other thing, the sort of right to privacy? Where, where that, that line... Harvey Weinstein seems to move that line a little bit um, at, the, at the cost of privacy, maybe. Or do you, how do you feel about that? Well, and I think that's where the assessment has to be at least initially uh, aimed at the culture. Hmm. Because when the privacy... Privacy? Privacy? Now I'm saying privacy. Yes. Uh, the privacy problem... I'm making you English, gradually. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's just like that. Um, <laughs> Uh, the privacy problem really occurs when you're looking and investigating individuals. And it, in the, but when you're investigating the entire company, what is the climate like? What is the culture like uh, for people? Do our women, have you surveyed your employees? Are they saying harassment is a problem here, even though they're not filing complaints? And that, that, would, that would surely to justify the, or to, to work in the system you're describing, you would go to an outside firm and say, okay. will you survey all our women employees? Right. And the surveys have to be, have to be private. Anonymous, yeah. Yeah, they have to be anonymous. But uh, at the same time, what they might yield is that there are culprits. Uh, I think so. once you start investigating culture, you might find that there are certain individuals who are, are offenders or maybe repeat offenders. And then you have to decide what you're going to do about it. In terms of the outside climate, you, you, we talked about, you mentioned the media, you, we talked about the pressure of the law. I mean, one very obvious difference now compared with what then is we now have Donald Trump as president. Mm-hmm. Um, to what extent does he make it harder to deal with the issue of sexual <coughs> harassment? I assume that people vote for Donald Trump for any number of reasons. Uh, But what I also assume is that we all have an opportunity now to look at his language and to analyze his language in, in a reasoned fashion. And what is deeply troubling about his language was not only the normalizing of this predatory behavior, but was the sense of his entitlement to behave in a certain way. And I think that's one of the real flags, that if you have an individual who feels, whether it's the president of the United States or somebody in your organization who feels entitled to do whatever they want to whomever they want, 
because they're in that position of power, then that is your red flag. It's something that you should all be pushing back against because it won't just begin and end with sexual harassment. It will be all kinds of behavior. There can be bullying. There can be other forms of discrimination, racial discrimination, homophobia in the workplace. And that's something that you want to... I'll ask you one final question. What, what would be, this is about the year ahead, about 2018, what would be a reasonable kind of metric to measure us, measure things by, which you could say, look, it has got better because of X. What, what, is, what is the sign that you would like to see that would mean that something really has changed? Well, first of all, if you're doing the surveys, there are two things that can happen. You can take the survey now and then take it months later. Are you feeling safe? Do you feel that this is harassment-free, that you feel that you're moving forward on harassment? I think the other metric, and this is uh, one that I talk about, is a change in leadership. Have you really examined the kinds of culture that you want and realized that in order to get that culture, you need to diversify your leadership and your management in your company? And I, I, I really believe that... Um, yeah, and in companies that have actually addressed this problem, uh, there's some research that shows that over a year or two, leadership changes, that you get more diversity in leadership, more diversity in terms of women uh, moving into leadership roles, more diversity in terms of people of color. Once you make a commitment to uh, making sure that people are treated equally and fairly and, uh, in your workplaces. Professor Hill, thank you very much for being so clear. Thank you. I think it's really useful to hear from someone like Anita Hill because she has this long view that can make you see how these moments can affect change, even though she did say that it will plateau. But even hearing that before her testimony... Nobody had sexual harassment policies, and now 90% of companies do. It's things like that that make the moment right now feel a lot less defeatist. Like, yeah, we're outing sexual harassers, but how can we really make the workplace better? And she gave some actual solutions for that. She did keep hitting on that theme of external versus internally imposed changes or kind of structural versus cultural. And the structural stuff is you know, those policies and the laws. And she talked about how all that has changed. But she also kind of made it sound like she is seeing something of a cultural shift, too. I liked that she mentioned, you know, we're not necessarily having the conversation about why don't more women speak up because so many women are speaking up now. Now we're having this conversation about why is this behavior happening and and what structures are enabling it? And I agree with you. There is a, a defeatism and a sort of sadness in hearing all this stuff. It feels very repetitive. But I'm encouraged by how different things actually are now than they were in 1991 in a way I didn't even really fully grasp until I listened to this interview. And on a lighter note, let's do some half-baked takes. Half-baked takes. If you have a half-baked take, you can call our voicemail. It's 212-617-0166. Becca, what's your half-baked take this week? My half-baked take is winter Fridays. Okay. I know we have a half-baked take for every day of the week, so here we go. Um, 
I just think that it's way better to get out of work early on those dark winter Fridays. Or it's just as good as a summer Friday. We need it. It's so dark. Gets dark so early. No one's doing any work. Like, let us go. So depressing. Not every company ha- even has a summer Friday policy, but even when they don't, I feel like there's just like an yeah. accepted sense on Friday afternoons in the summer that nobody's really getting any work done. Yeah, and but you you're saying too early. Saying all the time. Should we not? Should we just not work on Fridays? No, like if, I if think we should work on Fridays, but I do think people should get out early. But just we should accept that the second half of every Friday all throughout the year is yeah. garbage. But especially after the time change is yeah. particularly difficult. We should get some, I feel like we should get some kind of compensation or just help through that period because yeah. that's that's a really rough transition. Yeah. Winter Fridays. What's your half-baked take? My half-baked take is about that awkward moment when you talk to somebody in the office but they don't respond because they have headphones on and they're listening to music. It's usually not something that's important enough that you are going to like go really out of your way to get them to yank their headphones out, like walk over to them and shake them or say their name a bunch of times really loud. But I just, as with so many things, I just like, I need some kind of face saving etiquette for when I'm like, Hey Becca. And then everyone in the office except for Becca has heard me say that and nobody responds. Like, what do I say next? Um, honestly, I don't have this problem. (laughs) What do you do when you talk to somebody and they don't respond? I think I just escalate their name louder and louder and louder until they can hear. But then what if it's like something really trivial? Like all you wanted to say was like, did you read that article this morning or something? I think you can avoid this just by talking to people only via chat. (laughs) Okay, You don't need to talk out loud. Yeah. Stop talking to people. That's the answer probably to a lot of things in the office. Yeah. heard it. That's the half-baked take, really. And this has been Half-Baked Takes. Half-Baked Takes. Thanks for listening to Game Plan. You can find me on Twitter at Francesca Today. And I'm at RZ Greenfield. Call into our hotline. Tell us your Half-Baked Take or whatever else. The number is 212-617-0166. If you like our show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and just take a couple of seconds to rate, review, subscribe, give us a little shout out it helps more people find out about our show this show is produced by liz smith and magnus henriksen head of podcast is francesca levy and we'll see you next week bye hi oh wait what do we say hi i'm francesca levy right that's how we start okay